Well, today is Louis Riel Day. Um, not every, I mean, across the country, in Manitoba, they have a different one. It's in February, which can be sometimes um, a little bit confusing. But today is indeed Louis Riel Day. Day. It was in 1885 on this day, November 16th, that he was executed. I think a lot of us know the name. Um, 137 years later, he's really, his legacy as a champion of the Métis people uh, and Métis rights is very much carved into our national history. But it, in some ways, it has come at an expense at the expense of a better understanding of the history of his people in some ways. So it was to further our understanding of that history that Riel's great-grandniece, Jean Taillet, an accomplished, accomplished Indigenous rights lawyer in her own right, published a book a few years ago called The Northwest is Our Mother, the story of Louis Riel's people, the Métis Nation. And on this Louis Riel day, uh, we thought, what better person to speak to about the meaning of the day and other issues that she's been writing about of late as well um, than Jean Taillet herself, who's a senior counsel with Pape Salter Taillet in Vancouver. She specializes, as I mentioned, in Indigenous rights law, and uh, she is Louis Riel's great-grandniece. Thanks so much for your time tonight. It's a pleasure to be with you, Ben. What does the, what must this day mean to the family? Uh, I, I heard a great interview you gave where you described Louis Riel as like a comet, right? Something that just sort of soars above history in some ways. And, and I think you've tried over the years to address some of the gaps that that has left in our understanding of Métis history and Métis culture. Yeah, you know, he, it's, it's funny, you know, that Métis history is, you know, 200 plus years, and he's really only 17 years of that. And yet he carved a place in Canadian history that's pretty extraordinary. Uh, so he, I, I think of him as this just incredibly magnetic person. He must have been. He stood in Winnipeg when it was 40 below and talked for two hours and people would actually listen. <laughs> that is remarkable. You've got to be good to do that. You know? <laughs> yeah. The book, the book that you put together was fascinating because I remember you, you speaking about you would bring sort of documents, uh, Louis Riel associated documents to show and tell when you were in primary school. It's true. We did. My brothers and I all did. We had a, a, a batch of them that my dad took when when there's a house in St. Boniface or St. Gatel called Riel House, which is a little bit misleading because it makes it seem like it's Louis Riel's house. But it was actually my great grandfather's house. And my great grandfather was Louis's little brother. And right. so it's actually Joseph Riel's house. And when my great aunt Yvonne got too old to be living in it, the my uncle Roger, I think they sold it to um, the federal government for a dollar with the understanding that it was going to be made into a museum, which it is. And they cleaned out all her stuff. And in the trunk, in the attic, there was a trunk full of papers. And my dad grabbed a handful of them I think some of my other uncles did too. So we had those papers. They weren't all written by Louis Riel, but some of them were. And um, we just, we were pretty callous with them. I think we, we knew they were important and we knew we should be proud of having these things and that there was something to show and tell about. But I don't think we really had a sense of the real historical significance of, you know, taking Louis Riel papers to show and tell in grade four. I don't, I don't think we got that at all. In fact, my brother John says that his teacher tried to stop him or stopped him from actually putting thumbtacks through them to put them right. up on the board. You know? <laughs> so with all that in mind, I guess it must be, I, I don't know how to put this question exactly, but it's both in some ways we associate so much of what we understand, you know, as, as, the history of the Métis through that one story. And, and, and you're right, he, mm-hmm. he's 17 years in a much longer 
and much more complicated and fascinating story that's so intertwined in Canada's story. It's totally intertwined. I mean, Louis Riel is responsible for negotiating two-thirds of what we now call Canada into the Canadian Confederation. So that's all of northern Quebec, all of northern Ontario, all of the Prairie Provinces, the Northwest Territories, the Yukon, all of that came in with his negotiations in 1870, in Manitoba, 1869 and 1870. So he is a big part of Canadian history. There's no question about it. And the problem is that, you know, you've got he was young, right? That's the other thing about it. He's 24 and 25 through that whole period in Manitoba when he was doing this. And the way I sort of think about it is this one young guy, it's almost like he's a, a computer hacker or somebody who succeeded in jamming the plans of Canada and Great Britain. And they're outraged. Who is this upstart? Who is this person who can stop us from doing what we want to do? Uh, and, and I think a lot of it is it, it's, it, it, that they've never heard of him. They don't know who he is. And that he's Métis. There's no small amount of prejudice <laughs> going on. Right in all of this stuff but that's what happened and he was successful in partly successful i'd say in getting um some of the terms that they were looking for it they were they were only looking to negotiate the terms on which the west came into canada not not to not do it but but they thought that they should be able to negotiate um, like Canada did with all the other provinces. But the reason Canada didn't do it with the West was because it was most, I would say, 98 or 99% of the people were Indigenous, and the government didn't think they had to stoop to negotiate with those kind of people. So there's imagine, a lot of that going uh, yeah. on. Yeah. Imagine if they had. Imagine if they had. If we're well, you know today. what? Louis Riel's government was much more... Um, what we would today call democratic than the government that um, Sir Johnny MacDonald plunked in place, which was kind of a carpetbagger um, government uh, where the people had basically no say in anything that was going on. It was all decided by Ottawa. It was all the things they didn't want. That's what they did. And it was completely um, English run for the most part. Uh, they succeeded in getting um, a lot. There was a lot of animosity there's a, a, a thing called the Orange Lodge that was basically running Canada back in those days. And there were an avowedly like, flat-out white supremacist. They wanted to people the West with um, white Protestant uh, Anglo-Saxons. And they, were, they weren't shy about saying that. They wanted to eradicate the French, eradicate the, the Roman Catholics, and get rid of the Métis, and plunk all the Indians into little tiny backwater reserves. That was their plan. And to a large part, you have to say they were successful, because right after Riel negotiated the Manitoba Act, MacDonald sent the troops in. They instituted a reign of terror that even the New York Times ran as a headline in 1871. So, you know, I would guess today that probably 90% of the people who read the New York Times don't know where Winnipeg is, even today. Yeah. Yeah. And so if they're running a headline about what's going on in Winnipeg in 1871, that means it was big news and it means everybody knew about it. They were the soldiers, uh, McDonald called them, were raping, gang raping girls. They were burning down houses. They were beating people. They murdered people. 
um, anybody they could find who was Métis. They beat up anybody they could find who was Catholic, anybody who disagreed with them. It was a, it was a rain. The newspapers called it a reign of terror within six weeks of the troops arriving, and it lasted for two and a half years. And uh, McDonald did absolutely nothing to curb it. In fact, I think he tacitly liked it. Wow. Um, you know, this is the anniversary of, of Louis Riel's execution. Uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and I guess we, we, we look back now, uh, 137 years later, do you feel like we've we've come a distance in 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 recognizing uh, Métis culture, the Métis nation, uh, since since those? I mean, oh, yeah. after the yeah yeah, absolutely. There's no question that we're moving um, forward with respect to Indigenous peoples all the way down the line. Um, now, are we anywhere near where you know I think we should be? No, but are we a long way from where we were 50 years ago? Absolutely. Lots and lots and lots have changed since then. So I think there's a, a, a good momentum going on right now, but it's a little bit, you know, my uncle Roger used to say it's sort of like, you know, comes in waves, you get sort of a, a wave and then you get a back undertow and it, you sort of go backwards a little bit and then you go forwards again and you go backwards again, but you never go right back to where you were back, say, in 1870, right? We're not we're not going back there. We're not even going back to the 50s and 60s. So there will be an undertow from time to time where we'll take a few, you know, we take five steps forward and two back and five more steps forward and two more back. But we, there is, you know, to quote um, Martin Luther King, the arc of justice does, the arc, the arc bends towards justice. And I think that's what I see right now. So it is getting better. And today, is one of those days. I mean, it, it's not a celebration day. It's kind of a, something like memorial, you know, or like a remembrance day. Yeah. And we have celebrated it. I was just reading some stuff this afternoon that um, the Union Nationale Métis Saint-Joseph has been meeting every day on this, every year on this day since we all was hanged in 1885. They've never missed a year. And they they got and I got pictures from like 1911, 1946, wow. and 1887. They were that's when they started the commemoration. So this is um, this is a serious day for the Métis Nation. And there would have been uh, I'm not in Winnipeg today, but there would have been a gathering at Riel's gravesite, as they gather in various places all across um, the Métis Nation from basically Ontario west. Somewhere. Jean Taillet is with us this half hour. It is Louis Riel Day. She is Louis Riel's great grandniece. We've been talking about the significance of the day. She's also written a book called The Northwest is Our Mother, the story of Louis Riel's people, the Métis Nation. Um, she's also written an op-ed uh, recently in the Globe and Mail, which was very interesting. It comes on the heels of a report that she wrote for the University of Saskatchewan about a case of suspected Indigenous identity fraud. And it was a really fascinating um, op-ed, Jean. It's actually why I think I contacted you in the first place after reading it, um, because it's been a really, it's been a topic that's been talked about a lot, but it's hard to, hard to figure out. It's, it, it's the most, what you wrote was the most comprehensive thing I'd seen about it, or at least the most engaging. Um, why did you feel it was time to write about this issue um, in a national paper? Well, uh, first of all, I mean, I wrote the report, and the report mm-hmm. was getting a lot of pickup um, all across the country. 
And so the national paper came to me and said, would I do a, a, right. a very short, short, short? And it really is because the report's 80 some odd pages long. So, you know, um, 750 or 1,200 words or whatever it is, is definitely um, a uh, Cole's Notes version of the, yeah, a snippet the, of it, yeah. Uh, if people know what Cole's Notes are anymore, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, of a certain age. I do, certainly. Uh, okay. But this was prompted by a case at the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, yeah. Carrie Barassa was the, was, the, was the professor's name who claimed Indigenous heritage. Uh, it was found that she didn't. And, and you thought this, was, this is a far more serious issue than perhaps, because we use a word called pretendian, which you found a bit flip. Yeah, I think it's, it's too cute. Um, I, I get it. I mean, it's clever. It's witty. Um, to put pretend and Indian together and come up with pretendian. But the problem for me is that pretend makes it sound like it's a game. And it also, you know, that's the kids play it pretending. And so it seems harmless when you call it um, a word like that. So that's my problem with it is I don't think it captures the gravity of the situation at all. So the report came uh, because I was engaged to investigate, do an employment investigation of Dr. Barasa, but then she resigned. But I had already been working for six months or seven months on the investigation, and I'd interviewed 60 people and, you know, uh, done a lot of reading and thinking about it. So the university turned around and said, you know, could you just write it um, in a generic way? Tell us about the problem and all Mm -hmm. the research you've done and set it all out for us and just don't don't deal with individuals anymore. And I thought that was a really good idea because it allowed me to, you know, these um, exposés that are out in the press have a little bit of a salacious quality to them. And uh, so I thought it would be, it was a very nice opportunity to have a serious um, uh, ability to write about this without zoning in on any particular person. Uh, And I thought that was, that's a much more helpful way to, um, start people thinking about this. So how should we tackle it? <laughs> um, well, first of all, I, I think that it should be recognized that it's not a game, that people picking up another identity uh, that they really have no right to do, that it is impersonation and it's theft. Um, and so it also, I guess... So the way, to, the way to tackle it, I think, first all, of all, is to recognize that this is happening and the seriousness of this comes, you know, if it was just the, the ones who are being exposed right now, the, the famous, you know, the Joseph Boydens and the Michelle Latimers and the Carrie Barassas and lately Dr. Mary Ellen Terpelafond, if, if it was just the odd singular person like that, I don't think it would be such a serious thing. I mean, each one of those causes a lot of harm, but... It's not so serious. The problem is we're talking about tens of thousands of people, and I am not exaggerating. In fact, I might be underestimating. It might actually be in the hundreds of thousands by now. So of people who are suddenly, and this is all like in the, since about 2002, really, um, or 2000, yeah, 2002 or 2003. So you're talking about in the last, um, 20 years. 20 years, yeah. Pe- yeah. Tens of thousands, if not 100,000 plus people, have suddenly decided to identify as Indigenous. And most of them are doing it on the flimsiest of ideas, you know, the 
um, they go back and mine the archives and find that they have an ever so great Indian grandmother in 1605. Well, that's ludicrous that they had, by the way that they haven't known about for 400 years right <laughs> and so right. and then they they find this little gem and they suddenly say well i get to call myself indigenous and you and you just like i just shake my head and say, i mean you could go back and find anybody in your family tree you could find actually a friend of mine did a dna thing and it said that um i can't remember um the, anyway she, the, the, it, you can find like you know an ancient greek ancestor or something like that it doesn't make you greek it doesn't right. teach you anything. Um, and yeah. other people are doing DNA tests, right? And they come back and the DNA test says you've got 5% Native American ancestry. And the thing about that is people don't understand the DNA test. They're doing, most of them are doing mitochondrial, which is your mother's, so it's one woman out of each generation. So your mother's, 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 mother's. They just go right. back in that way. So it's only following that one person all the way down the line. So if it comes back and says you've got 10% Native American ancestry, that's actually 10% of less than 1% of less than 1% of your ancestral DNA. But they don't tell you that, right? No. <laughs> so, but, that's, so, and, but people will literally, like Joseph Boyden says, well, I've got Native American DNA. And but I, it's just it's ludicrous. So these kinds of or people who have flimsy stories like, you know, my grandfather always said that there was some native in us. But you don't right. go, you know, there's nothing there. You're, you're doing what Adam Godry calls communing with the dead. If you're going back that far, there's nothing. There's no live people around you. There's no people who are you're not part of anything real. You're just part of some antique historical um, you know, dust gathering genealogical fact, and it should stay there, and you can't pump it up and create it into something that gives you a viable Indigenous identity today. It's just a fantasy. It's a complete G fantasy. Jitai, I'll have to leave it there. I, I, okay. I would like love to have you back, and we'll talk further about this. It's been, okay. it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. Okay, bye-bye.